Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I am co-hosting today, filling in for Dave Robson, and we're so excited to get him back home. Well, I guess we are. <laughs> I am. I'm enjoying. Are I'm you enjoying excited it. about Dave coming back? <laughs> Do I look excited? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a weekday Bible answer program. We do this every day, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We're in Southern Arizona, live streaming from Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And in studio with me today is Pastor Scott Richards. Hey. How are you? I'm doing great. We get an opportunity to be able to share God's Word today. doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. 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 And then, of course, uh, Pastor Sean Richards, also in studio with us. Hello, Glad Sean. Glad to be here. Well, there are multiple ways that you can ask questions. Uh, we desire to really just have individuals who have a sincere desire to know truth, to discover truth. Perhaps you're... Uh, curious about world religions or the Christian faith, or maybe you're a believer or someone who has maybe raised in the Christian church and uh, maybe found yourself skeptical and want to kind of clarify some ideas or a specific passage that you want clarity on or how to apply it to your life. Chime in, and the best way you can do that is to join us. You can watch the live stream on Facebook is uh, one place you can go. Just go to facebook.com and our page is forward slash at CCF Tucson. Like our page if you would, and just join the live stream and use the comments section to post your questions, and we will tackle them as they come throughout the program. Again, we do this every weekday, Mountain Standard Time, 5 to 6 p.m. So there's a whole hour where if you get to here late, just jump on and ask your question. We also live stream simultaneously to YouTube. And if you happen to catch us on one of these social media platforms, we'd really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe and share to your news feed. Also hit that notification bell so that you don't miss when we're gonna go live next. Uh, we also live stream all of our services and special events. So if you are interested in our uh, teaching ministry here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, then we would encourage you to um, you know, like and subscribe to our channel. Our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash at a reason for hope 546. We also archive our program on Rumble, so if you missed it and don't care for some of those uh, live streaming platforms we're using, uh, go on to Rumble and you can catch our past programs. We categorize them by the top three questions asked, so if you are interested in a particular question that um, you're curious whether or not we've dealt with before, scroll on through. And if you happen to catch us on Rumble, don't forget to follow. We'd love to grow our audience there. Again, our hope and desire is to uh, make an impact in people's lives by helping them get a closer and more intimate relationship with our Creator. <clears throat> you can also follow the live stream on our website if you'd prefer to avoid social media platforms altogether. I think that uh, with YouTube you have to actually have an account in, to, in order to comment and you have to have a Facebook account in order to comment. If you'd prefer to avoid that and don't want to have a Facebook page or have a YouTube account, just go to our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. Calvarychristianfellowship.com. Go to the Watch Live tab, and you can not only watch the live stream and our services, but there's a little comment box where you can leave your questions. Nifty little prayer button. If you have a prayer request, uh, hit that, and uh, we'd be happy to pray for you. We also have a Bible app. So if you go to the Apple or Google Play Store and search for Calvary Christian Fellowship Tucson, you can download our app follow our community, join chat groups, has a little nifty Bible where you can leave notes and highlight. Uh, you can choose multiple Bible translations. You can also 
watch or listen to archives of our past messages. We are a church who teaches uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So if you want to do, let's say, a study of the book of Genesis, um, you can do that. You can follow along with Pastor Scott and go through the entire book of Genesis. It's a really, really awesome way to learn and just pour through the Word of God. If you want to add our live stream to one of your uh, devices at home, one of your smart devices like Roku or Amazon Fire products, you can add us and watch the live stream there. If you want to ask your question more discreetly or perhaps don't want to just publicize your question and have the whole world see what you're asking, uh, you know, feel free to email us as well. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. So just email your question. And again, for those of you listening on the radio, questions for hope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. Lastly, I'd encourage you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter. It's a very informative and often entertaining Twitter feed, and you can post your question there as well. And that if you go to twitter.com forward slash at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H, which stands for Reason for Hope. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we take your questions, we'll get a little news update on current events, but uh, the most important thing we do is go before the Lord and ask him to speak through us in a uh, honoring way, in a way that will uh, give grace to those who hear. Absolutely. Pastor Scott? Yeah, Father, I thank you that we have this opportunity on this day to be able to seek you and uh, to know that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts than our thoughts. And uh, I thank you, Lord, that you communicate how you look at us as people and how we are to look at one another as people through your divinely inspired word. We pray that that would be our our. Uh, our lodestone. I pray that it would be our GPS. I pray, Father, that we would uh, be able to look at all of our relationships and uh, surrender ourselves to you, that uh, your love would be that which is uh, greater than any differences that we profess. Thank you, God, that we have this opportunity to explore your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Scott, and uh, thank you both for being here and doing this. It's uh you know, doing this daily is diligent work. And of course, every time you get a new question, I imagine over the last 20 years, where you think, you know, I have to kind of brush up on my understanding of that. Uh, can't imagine uh, the amount of diligence that is required to to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks. Uh, yeah. Really, really phenomenal. But um, <clears throat> really interesting current events today. Uh, big news. Yeah. From Huge. Huge news, I would say. Uh, probably one of the most. Uh, uh, earth-shaking decisions to come out of the Supreme Court uh, since the uh, reversal of Roe v. Wade. Mm. And uh, that was uh, the decision that uh, the Supreme Court came today uh, in the court case of Students for Fair Admission Incorporated versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled uh, six to three that the admissions program for both schools uh, not only Harvard University, but the University of North Carolina, uh, violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Chief Justice John Robert authored the majority opinion, uh, concluding that the courts have permitted race-based admissions only within the, the confines of narrow restrictions. He said this, university programs must comply with strict scrutiny. They may never use race as a stereotype or negative 
and at some point they must end. Uh, referring to the 2003 Supreme Court decision, Grutter versus Bollinger, which said the use of racial preferences for student admission will no longer be necessary within the next 25 years. Uh, respondents' admission systems, Roberts goes on to say, however well-intentioned and implemented in good faith, fail in each of these criteria. They must therefore be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Roberts was joined by Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Comey Barrett. In her decision, Judge Justice Sonia Sotomayor authored a dissenting opinion, uh, being joined by Justices Alina Kagan and Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, Brown-Jackson was not uh, uh, a, uh, a particular respondent to this case because uh, she recused herself because of her tight connections with uh, Harvard University. But Sotomayor wrote, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment enshrines a guarantee of racial equality. The court long ago concluded that the guarantee cannot be enforced through race consciousness means in a society that is not and has never been colorblind. Today, this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous prog progress. It holds that race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve such critical benefits. And so holding, the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. Well, you know, I think what uh, uh, Sonia Sotomayor was getting at was the idea that it is impossible to have a colorblind approach to uh, decisions like, say, college admissions or hiring or things along li these lines. Uh, the fact that uh, the history of uh, racial differences and uh, even uh, oppression based upon race, i.e. slavery and the Jim Crow era afterwards, uh, would say that uh, it's really impossible for us to be colorblind. And so we need to set aside these preferences. We need to, in a sense, lower the bar for certain candidates based upon uh, the amount of melanin that uh, is in their skin, for lack of a better term. Now, uh, how can we analyze this from a biblical point of view? Is the idea of colorblindness some wild fantasy? Well, it should not be for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Who those, for those who have a relationship with him. Boy, there's a couple of really powerful passages that talk about the difference that God makes in our lives, irrespective of what our genetic uh, endowment might be, what our heritage might be, what our culture might be. The first is found in the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, where it says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul was saying there wasn't that there weren't distinctions in roles and so forth. But as far as our relationship with God, what it means to be human, what it means to uh, be even a child of God, uh, has nothing to do with the superficialities of race. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul speaking at Mars Hill made a, a pretty uh, challenging statement, at least as far as our culture is concerned, says that he made from one blood 
all those who would dwell on the face of the earth and deter, predetermine their times, mm-hmm. their habitations, if somehow they might seek him and grope for him and find him. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Now you have to realize what a radical statement that was coming from the mouths of a guy who was previously known as Rabbi Saul. Uh, He was a thoroughgoing Pharisee. He was an individual uh, that was brought up under the teaching that the only reason that God made non-Jews in the first place was to make logs to stoke the fires of hell. Uh, Israel had cozied up to Gentiles in the past, and uh, that kind of uh, rubbing shoulders led them into idolatry and the judgment of God. So their deal was absolutely no interaction. Mm. You could not uh, go to the home of a non-Jewish person. Heaven forbid you shared a meal Mm. with uh, a non-Jewish person, simply on the basis of ethnicity simply on the basis of your genealogy. And you can see how that reactivity uh, really ended up uh, creating not just a problem for the Jewish people, but a problem for the early church. One of the huge uh, hurdles the early church had to overcome was the idea, could non-Jewish people be actually saved at all, right? Um, And there was an attempt to kind of compromise on that and say, well, if they go through the Jewish initiation rite of circumcision, if they become Jewish proselytes, then we are willing in our infinite uh, magnanimity uh, to say, well, if you convert to Judaism, then you can receive the Jewish Messiah. Well, the bottom line was no. The whole book of Galatians is about all of that. And in fact, the Apostle Paul talked about how there were these Judaizers who were trying to say, okay, you can come over to our side. If you buy into our culture, if you buy into our ritual first, then you can be saved. Mm. And what Paul basically was saying is as soon as you do that, um, you've set aside the grace of God. Mm. Uh, You have said that we are saved by things we do for God. And, and, and so, you know, we have an entire book of the Bible that's devoted to that. And, and so when we come to faith in Christ, the relationship that we have with the Lord is absolutely culture blind. It's blind geographically. It's blind uh, as far as uh, color is concerned. In fact, the idea of races really kind of got its traction going in Victorian England. Uh, which was used as sort of an apologetic to say that, uh, well, the uh, British people are the most uh, evolutionarily uh, superior. Uh, These other races, if you will, are inferior, not so evolved as we are. And so, as uh, authors like Rudyard Kipling would say, we have this white man's burden to tell all these inferior people based upon how they look or where they live. Uh, how to live their lives. Mm. And if they could just become Victorian Englishmen, then we'd be getting somewhere. Mm. And there are plenty of other sources that cited that before. Arabs in Saudi Arabia upon the advent of Islam noted the Africans as an inferior race because, and this is a quote from their sources, they were simply created by Allah to be little more than apes. And we saw Charles Darwin popularize that in Europe. We see even times before that the foundations of cultural paganism and noting that the gods that favor us over the other nations are what make us superior. It goes as far back as human nature 
is concerned. But if we see it at practice in our world today, we're fortunate to have this Christian framework at place not only in our legal system but in our hearts to be able to say, you know what, this is wrong. There is a way that we need to treat and see people and affirming people into positions of education or occupation is wrong if it's determined solely based on checking the boxes. Yeah, or how you look on the outside. Um, you know, to take it even a step deeper, uh, as if the Bible wasn't absolutely clear on the fact that, uh, you know, uh, you know, melanin is skin deep. Um, that's not what makes us valid before God. It even goes deeper than that. Uh, in the book of Colossians, uh, the, the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 3, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, I, I think it's really interesting that Paul throws in this idea of barbarians. Um, barbarians uh, were anyone who didn't speak Greek. Yeah, barbarians. Yeah, they, 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 the Greek-speaking person would hear them, you know, say uh, uh, Visigoth uh, going away. So it just sounds like they're saying bar, bar, bar to me. Uh, you know, <laughs> so that's and, where, the, nickname and that's where the word barbarian came from. Hmm. Uh, and and so if you didn't speak Greek, you were considered inferior. You were considered not up to snuff <clears throat> intellectually and and personally and so on. Hmm. The 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 reference to Scythians here. Oh boy. is really significant because, uh, Sean, the Scythians were bad news, right? Yeah, as far as the quote-unquote barbaric practices, the word pagan just means villager. It meant that you lived outside of the suburbs. So, in Like a, hayseed or hick. Yeah, <coughs> so in a Roman culture, obviously, they were pagans in the proper sense. But when we're talking about the religious views, it was a distinction from the civilized and the uncivilized. Now, what's interesting about the Scythian is that they kind of conjoined the two concepts. We think of something as barbaric. We're referring to someone not because of their literacy, but because of their destructive wanton behavior. Yeah, like a Goths or someone like that. Yeah, yeah. so if you have this uh, destructive, for destruction's own sake, mindset, that's what people were viewing as a Scythian. Those were the brigands, those were the pirates, those were the monsters that we have hopefully moved past as far as uh, Greek culture is concerned. Yeah, the Scythians came from an area that roughly uh, kind of went around the Caspian Sea heading up uh, towards Russia. And apparently, according to historians like Herodotus, if you fell into the hands of the Scythians, they had uh, ways of torturing outsiders that would make even the Assyrians blush in comparison. They were considered absolutely animalistic, uh, un unable to be uh, reasoned with. Uh, you know, we'll kill you first, and then we'll go to work on you. Kind of, so that, uh, kind of people. So that title is more behavioral rather than like a difference of an appearance. Well, it refers to a culture, you know, an individual who was a Scythian could be recognized by uh, attributes of the Scythian culture. And uh, what Paul is doing by bringing this up is saying no matter how pronounced the difference might be, hmm. no matter how intensely different a culture might be, a person comes to Christ, and they're a new man. They're a new woman. They have a relationship with God, not based on 
where they grew up, not based upon where they have been, but based upon what God has done for them by God giving them a brand new heart, a brand new life, causing them to be born again. Uh, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So the idea of racism, uh, the idea that, uh, that there were Christians who made arguments that slavery was okay because blacks are inferior and they have the mark of Cain or, or things like this, uh, absolutely heretical. Uh, and and uh, you know, there, there, there's no two ways about it. They just reject the clear teaching of God's word and supply their own. Conversely, if we, in a sense, bring that same mentality to our relationships with one another, well, then we're in the same boat. You know, when we talk about the Supreme Court saying you can't use race as a factor in student admissions, and obviously this sets a precedent that is going to evidently uh, you know, challenge race-based quotas and so on as far as employment goes, as far as uh, you know, a, a whole slew of things. And, and this are, began are gonna, because the Asian community were the ones who were losing out the most. Right, right. Just discriminated on that, uh, discriminated against on that basis. Discrimination based upon external appearance, um, we would say as Christians, is wrong. The, the reason I think that this has such a, uh, a controversy, and, and obviously uh, people uh, like uh, Elena Sotomayor, uh, the Biden administration has come out uh, just uh, head exploding, screaming and yelling about all of this. Uh, the reason for that is if you don't buy into a Christian worldview, right, then all bets are off. If all we are is, uh, I guess, uh, to uh, uh, use uh, the line from the old song, for all we are is in a scary evolution, uh, who knows where, uh, then, you know, if we all are all just animals and there is nothing inherent in us that makes us worthwhile mm. as human beings, well, then, you know, we definitely need to have these sort of things in place because uh you know obviously you know I, I think it was george w bush who talked about the soft bigotry of low expectations you know well you know obviously we can't expect you to compete on a level ground uh well what does that say well that says something about how you look at a at a person mm. and underneath all of that is going back to that victorian england evolutionary mindset there are certain people that just through the right role of the genetic dice are smarter, more capable, uh, obviously don't need help. And then we've got people that do. And, uh, you know, uh, white man's burden again, hmm. uh, having to create these set-asides and these quotas and, and things like this. Um, you know, I, I just kind of go back to uh, you know, one of, one of the, uh, the important parts of my educational experience was, you know, I majored in communication, and I've always been fascinated, obviously, by speech. And uh, one of the, the I, I would say, outside of anything you find in the Bible, one of the most significant speeches ever given was Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Uh, most people don't realize this, but uh, Martin Luther King Jr. departed from his prepared remarks 
towards the end of the speech. As a matter of fact, the most significant parts of the speech uh, were the parts that, uh, that uh, we are, uh, are most familiar with. Hmm. He started riffing. Mahalia Jackson, uh, the, the famous singer, uh, kind of prompted him, prompted him in that direction saying, tell him about the dream, tell him about the dream while he was, while he was speaking. And, you know, evidently, uh, Martin Luther King listened. He said these words, I say to you today, my friends, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. You know, again, that's pretty spiritual stuff. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. How can we be brothers with people who we don't resemble on the outside? It's because we have something common on the inside, the love of Jesus Christ. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning, my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must be true. And he went on to talk about how freedom needed to ring from every part of America. And when this happens, we will allow freedom to ring. When we allow it, let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city. We will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last thank god almighty we're free at last hmm. wow you know uh, it, it was a sermon for lack of a better term hmm. when martin luther king jr really let loose well what's the message of that sermon are we going to be judged by the color of our skin or by the content of our character now i would be the first one to agree that if you have a society that is secular that is evolutionary based in its worldview none of this works Hmm. None of this works. And so you have to use the coercive uh, force of government to make people do, in a sense, the right thing by each other. And all that is is putting a heavy pot in a boiling kettle. Sooner or later, the thing's hmm. going to blow. Uh, I, it's just uh, tragic to me that uh, when I was growing up in the 70s, um, you know, we believed in King's dream. You know, we believed that uh, that uh, these these differences 
needed to go away. And when we would see someone like George Wallace in the South talking about segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, we, we thought these people were, were horrible, hateful people. But now we've sort of turned that around to you know be significant. You don't understand me, I need to be separate from you. And you know one of the, the, the real symptoms to me of a culture in decline that has turned us back on God is failing to see that the real person is the person of the heart, that the only color that God recognizes is the color red, the blood of Jesus Christ that mm-hmm. saves us all by faith through grace, not based on anything uh, th- that, uh, that we've done, not based on who we're related to, not based on what our ethnicity was, not based upon uh, our, our social status, but only based upon our hearts. And when non-Christians hear that, uh, they, they tend to go ballistic because how can government ever change a heart? How can coercion in a political philosophy ever change a heart? Uh, only the love of Jesus Christ can change a heart. And, you know, I just wrap up by one great illustration. Uh, a friend of mine that uh, I met in seminary, I talk about two people from the opposite sides of the globe. His name was Jeffrey Kasule. Uh, he was Oxford educated, won the uh, Golden Gloves championship in his weight class in Britain, but he was from Uganda. And uh, after he graduated, went back to Uganda, became a major in uh, the army under Idi Amin, the dictator there. Mm. Uh, Jeffrey was given the responsibility of persecuting Christians in Uganda because Idi Amin, uh, being a communist, uh, didn't want to have anything to do with these sort of people. So, um, you know, Jeffrey was doing his thing. Idi Amin fell from power. And Jeffrey was arrested as being a key part of Idi Amin's administration. He was thrown in jail. You know what he was thrown in jail with? A Christian pastor that he had arrested two years beforehand for teaching a Bible study. Wow. He shared a cell with this man, and this man led Jeffrey to a saving relationship with Jesus. Now, I got the opportunity to go to seminary with this guy, big, barrel-chested Ugandan. And uh, I invited him to come and speak uh, to our youth ministry that I was teaching. I just thought this is going to be incredible. And, uh, and it was. Uh, you know, he came in and he said, children, say it with me. God is good. You know, and first of all, you know, these are sophisticated teenagers from, you know, Calabasas. <laughs> children, uh, so God is good. no, no, say it like you mean it. God is good. And then he went, God is faithful. God is kind and merciful. By the time he got to merciful, he'd won him over. I mean, they're all yelling right along with him. And I mean, he shared this message and he was going on. He goes, you, you Americans, you're always looking at your watches. In Uganda, (laughs) we uh, meet until we feel God has really spoken to us and done what he's going to do. So, you know, and and just this powerful, powerful thing. But, you know, sitting down and talking with him, he said something to me one day that I'll never forget. He goes, isn't it amazing what Jesus does in our lives? Because 10 years ago, if I'd met you, I would have arrested you. And now you're my brother. Wow. And um, that, to me, is the only way out hmm. from racial animosity. And I get grieved when I see people that can exploit these kind of differences and stir them up for their own benefit, from their own financial rewards and so on. It really grieves my heart hmm. to see that sort of thing. But what's the answer? The answer isn't affirmative action. The answer isn't throwing out affirmative action. The only way that there's going to be peace 
here in our society and our culture is if we have something in common that transcends all of this. Mm. And that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, in a sense, what we offer the culture. And if what Paul was saying is true, that even a Scythian, you know, I, I mean, the scariest kind of person you could possibly imagine in that culture uh, is just as much a, a brother or sister in Christ as anyone else. Mm. God can bridge all of those gaps. So. Really interesting decision today. We're going to see what happens. Yeah, and it's in a sense something to be thankful for because in spite of the head of the executive branch being one of the most vocal proponents still alive today of segregation in schools, we see the judicial branch and the uh, legislative branch are both still doing good in this country. So we can be thankful for that. Yeah. Well, it was changed hearts by the gospel that ended uh, slavery. and William Wilberforce, the first official abolitionist. Yeah. Yeah, people forget that that you know, the 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 hatred of America because of its past slavery past. Um, when the reality is, is that the world was and is in, steeped in slavery, and it was the Christian message that spread throughout the West that actually made the the the, the tremendous difference. And even the song "Amazing Grace" that we sing. Most people don't realize this, but it was written by John Newton, a man who was a slave ship captain, worked in the slave trade uh, until he came to know Christ. Christ mm -hmm. changed his heart, and he became a part of the abolition movement along with Wilberforce. So God can reach anybody. There's a great movie about that whole story. Yeah. A really, yeah. really good one. Well, thank you for that. Um, gosh, talk about a on-the-spot great sermon. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor Scott. Really, really great. Sorry, I get wound up. <laughs> <laughs> well, praise the Lord. That's awesome. Well, let's get to some questions. Um, Kenneth wanted to know about foul language in the Bible. Uh, is there instances where in the original language is what they would have considered foul language, and why shouldn't Christians use that kind of foul language if it's in, or that la kind of language if it's in the Bible? Yeah, the three most direct examples, at least that we could name off the bat, uh, Malachi chapter two and verse three, where in Israel offering sacrifices to the Lord, but doing so half-heartedly, he tells them quite uh, crassly, I might add, that he's gonna take the refuse of those sacrifices and wipe it on their faces. Now, the term translated refuge is well, you can use your imagination, but it's very direct in the Hebrew. In the same way in the New Testament, in the book of Philippians, the, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 8 that in comparison to what he had before Christ, he now considers it rubbish. Now, that's the obviously uh, King Jamesy niceties of things, but it's literally a reference to the stuff that comes out of dogs in that sense. It's totally detestable to him, and he deliberately uses that language to communicate the emotional weight behind those words, which we'll go into the answer in a second. Another one, uh, you can take your pick, Ezekiel has a lot of it, but chapters 16 and 23 both are extremely explicit in referencing what's translated often as playing the harlot. It uses graphic sexual language right. in the most direct sense possible. So much so that uh, you weren't allowed to read the book of Ezekiel until you were 30 years old. 
So if we have pastors in the Bible, which for lack of a better word, are using F, S, C, and all these other things, why is it that as Christians, that's not the ideal thing? Well, the answer is in the New Testament, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it might impart grace to the hearers. So what's communicated in foul language, and this is oftentimes the case, I interact with teenagers a lot, so we think through things they don't usually want to think through. But the idea is when people are using words, usually vulgar references to defecation or sexual acts, as an adverb when they aren't, is because those kind of words shock people. And if they want to communicate emotion, or if they're just so dulled in their emotions that the only way to pay attention to somebody is to grab their attention with those words, that's usually why you see people spouting off four-letter explicitives all the time. It's not necessarily because of out of the abundance the heart speaks that it's true, but the reason why is because in some social groups, I'd say, not cultures, but social groups, that's just the way you communicate how you care about mm -hmm. something. It's the same thing in, say, for <clears throat> instance, excuse me, Middle Eastern circles, where you don't care about something unless you're mad about it. And they, they focus on your vocalization and your emotional investment more than the substance of your argument. So it's things to keep in mind. But grace aside, when it comes to saying, you know, you're a Christian, why are you talking like that? The reason for that is because we're holding them to standards they affirm, that if something's going to come out of my mouth, its purpose should not be to shock, to clutch, to get attention through underhanded or manipulative ways. It's to say, look, does this build up, literally edify my hearer? Yeah. Does this um, impact them in a positive way? And obviously there's people who just, you know, have a, a loose tongue, <laughs> for lack of a better term. They come from a background where it's just that's the way that you talked with people. I had a dictionary that was made of, you know, hashtag signs and at symbols and stuff if you were reading it on the internet. So the question is, what do I do about that? Well, like Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Start at the core of the issue. The question isn't, should Christians talk like that? In avoidance, but what should Christians be talking like? Mm. And since Jesus, as our model, didn't <clears throat> use that language in order to get attention or communicate thought, we should do so as well. However, the fact of the matter is, those words are still in language. There is a purpose for them. It's not to, uh, to reference the old cartoon SpongeBob, perform sentence enhancement, but <laughs> it's to what? in order to identify things that generally you don't talk about in polite company. And if Ezekiel 23 is the best example, you're talking about things that are horrifying, using words for it's appropriate. Right. But if you're just talking about, uh, oh, uh, uh, what was the line from Tombstone? Uh, Doc Holliday, how the heck are you? Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, obviously, I, I noting the point, but that's not the thing that should reflect godly characteristics. <clears throat> so when it comes to watching your mouth, first of all, understand why we'd have a problem with that. Secondly, understand the problem isn't what to focus on, it's the solution. And that's, of course, to model Jesus in everything that we do, including what comes out of our mouth and why we're talking the way we do to people. Because again, talking scornfully, 
uh, tearing people down with sarcasm and so forth. I, I don't necessarily struggle a lot with four-letter words, but I do have a problem with the intent I bring oftentimes to people, and that's just the same issue. That's why James said the tongue, if that can be tamed, what comes out of your mouth naturally, that's a, that's a fire set on by hell. If you can tame that, you're a perfect man. So yep. understand, apart from the Holy Spirit, it's not going to happen. Mm. But because of the Holy Spirit, this is why we need to watch those things. Now, is there any way to know whether, like, there are other ways of saying the same thing. I, I yeah. remember my, <clears throat> I, I, when I became a believer, I started attending a, a holiness church, a Wesleyan holiness church. And, and one time the pastor used the C version for junk. And he was talking about the Christian life and how... Crud? Uh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he got, I mean, he had to apologize the next sermon. The The elders got on his case, and um, it was just a huge drama because he used that word. And, uh, well, and they were reading audience. Philippians 3.8. Right. <laughs> and and then, so I, I began to wonder, especially once I learned of Paul's usage for what we translate into rubbish, could he have been using in the Greek language like the nice version, like, you know, puppy poo or something? That's not an offensive I'm referring to the exact same thing. Is yeah. there a way that, do we know that he was using foul language? Would that be considered a the, bad the, word? the word scuba in Greek, no other way around it, even mm. contextually, uh, counting the things that he used to value as the hallmarks of his salvation, mm. as in usually it's rendered dung. Mm -hmm. um, same thing. You don't have to use the, uh, the vulgarism to communicate the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, but but, he used but Paul uses version. this, mm. you know, to to make a point, to mm. uh, to show that. I don't think he used the ultimate vulgarism that was probably available at that time to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but he did want to make the point. You know, I guess the question always comes up. Uh, well, but I heard a pastor using that kind of language, or you know, there was a pastor that got a lot of traction. Uh, because he would talk really explicitly about his relationship with his wife and it was like ooh you know this is really you know cutting edge man and say hey man i'm just being real i'm just just being where people are at you know and all this stuff um yeah you know who am i to judge another man's servant but the reason you don't hear me doing that um kind of comes down to what jesus said in matthew chapter 12 and verse 34 he said, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, by your words you'll be condemned. Mm. Now the funny thing about that passage is starting that conversation what does jesus call the group brood of vipers now, a brood is another word for the clutch of eggs that spawn in the offspring literally he's calling them you sons of snakes yeah yeah now note was it appropriate absolutely was it necessary in order to express his opinion in every conversation no there's a reason why words are used yeah and when people say well jesus called people broods of vipers why can't i i have a really basic answer to that you're not jesus mm -hmm. you know jesus is able to judge are you yeah. um you know jesus motives for saying what he did were absolutely pure are yours um i know if i apply that standard to my life you know i i fail i flunk 
right away. Uh, but but the key thing is is this, you know, the the use of vulgarities, the the use of dropping f bombs, you know, which seems to just be completely acceptable in our society and all of this. You know, if you're coming out of all of that, doesn't mean that you're not saved, but it can mean that God's dealing with that issue in your life. It's like people who get saved and they smoke cigarettes. Does that mean you're not saved because you smoke a cigarette? No, but probably sooner or later, God's going to deal with you on that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's going to shorten your lifespan. It's not good for you. You shouldn't be doing it. But secondly, it's also going to be something that people look at and say, well, I thought they were a Christian. Look at that. Mm. And, and you know who's going to be probably the quickest to judge? Non-Christians. The non, yeah, yeah. They're going to see it as hypocrisy. Yeah. So, so why give an opportunity for the Word of God to be blasphemed because of you, as Paul would say? Uh, so, you know, to me, uh, you know, we just need to ask ourselves a question. Just because I feel like saying something, do I need to say it? Yeah. Uh, just because I feel like saying something in a certain way, do I need to say it? Or do I need to care more about the people that are listening to me than myself when I decide to express myself? And if you're a pastor, mm. and uh, last time I checked, First Timothy chapter 3, you're to be beyond reproach. In other words, it doesn't mean you don't make a mistake. It just means if you make a mistake, it's not going to stick. And you get into this, ha, 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 I've got freedom. I remember there was a guy used to be on the air named Dr. Gene Scott, and he used to use vulgarities because he was free in Christ. And he'd be smoking a stogie, and he'd wear, like, a big imperial margarine crown on his head, and he'd, like, you know, teach some real in-depth thing about prophecy. He goes, oh, hold on a sec. You guys need to, you need, guys need to call in and give. And then he would show clips of his uh, thoroughbred horse farm that he owned. And, and all of this, because he's free in Christ, you know. Um, wow. You know, okay. That's just silly. But you know what? Um, I'm not Dr. Gene Scott's judge, but Jesus is, and Dr. Gene Scott is no longer with us. He's crossed through the other side. Mm. Um, how did Jesus take all that? And maybe that's the best way to look at it. Uh, if I'm wondering if I should say something, in a certain way or use a certain word, ask yourself the question, would I do that if Jesus were sitting there, mm. if he were present? Because yeah. he is. You're going <laughs> to so, hand it to those little yeah. bracelets. They are more valuable than we probably gave them credit for. What would Jesus do? <laughs> well, <laughs> or maybe, I, maybe what, what, what would, would Jesus say? You know? What would I do so, if Jesus were here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Thank you. Yeah. Good question. Thanks for chiming in, uh, Kenneth. Uh, sorry we didn't get to it yesterday, but I'm hoping you're listening today. Uh, another question. Was Ishmael or Isaac offered in Genesis 22? Where does the controversy come from? Well, first, Sean, what is the controversy? Well, it depends who you're talking to. If you're talking to Christians that disagree about whether or not it was Isaac or Ishmael, the guy who disagrees hasn't read their Bible. It's very explicit that when uh, going all the way in the New Testament, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, it notes, was not Abraham justified by works when he what? offered Isaac on the altar. When Genesis 22 notes the account, what does it say? It notes he brought Isaac, the young lad. So when it comes to the group you're going to run into that would hammer this ancient controversy home the most, at least in the modern day, they're Muslims. And Muslims, believe it or not, 
don't know where this comes from either because and i'll i'll put my uh my uh, odds out here my certainty of this out on the carpet i will renounce christianity <laughs> recite the shahada with intent to convert and become a muslim today if anyone listening can show me in the quran where it mentions ishmael by name in any account of the offering of isaac or the offering of whoever you believe that it is you're not going to find it and i'm certain about that that's why i made the bold statement the most concise uh, recounting of the event in the Quran is in Surah 37. You can read it on your own time, but verses 99 through 106 essentially go into describing a summary of Genesis 22. But the problem is it never mentions who. So they don't get it from the Quran. They don't get it from the Hadith, the sayings of Muhammad, because 80% of Islamic doctrine isn't found in the Quran, it's found in the saints and example of Muhammad. He doesn't specify whether it was Ishmael. In fact, we have multiple Hadith narrations that say it was Isaac. They call him Ishaq in Arabic, but the uh, people who are proponents of the Ishmael theory just say, oh, those are fabricated, those are daif, which they say for everything they don't like. So where did the controversy come from? Well, essentially, it's because like most rulings in Islamic law. It's loyalty to your community, it's loyalty to your culture, it's loyalty to your religion as a concept rather than what it actually claims. Most times if you ask a Muslim, you know, what you believe, where is that chapter and verse or surah and ayah in your Quran, they're not going to be able to point you to it because they don't read it to learn, they read it just to recite because it counts as good deeds. The history behind this varies as far as whether it was from some Jewish sect that was exiled to Arabia, whether it was a heretical Christian view or something, uh, Arab nationalism. The odd thing is it's a very recent development, like the last two to three hundred years. The earliest Islamic commentators note it was a controversy. The most respected is a man named Al-Tabari, who wrote a concise history of the world from an Islamic perspective. Most of it's in volume six, because that's when Muhammad comes in. But in volume two, it mentions the binding of Isaac, and it names him. He acknowledges that there's controversy about whether it was Ishmael or Isaac, but the point stands. Most people concluded that, and that was true of Al-Tabari himself. Now what's interesting as well is when they say, okay, well, where is the contention? And that I'll pass this on to you as far as problems. They look at Genesis 22, believe it or not. Right. They say in verse 1, God spoke, appeared again to Abraham and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Then he tells him to do what? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him on the mountain that I will show you. So they look at that and go, well, at the time that Isaac was born, he would have been his second son, right? So if you got Ishmael, who have been born as his only son at that time, that means that it had to be Ishmael. You got a problem with that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a fundamental un a lack of understanding of what it means for God to call him his only son. And uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians goes into quite a bit of depth about the son of promise versus the son of the flesh. Uh, the idea of being an only son would refer to the idea of the rights of the firstborn. Uh, that is the individual that would get not only the double portion of the inheritance, but would be the spiritual leader of the family. Isaac was the child of promise, and God went out of his way to say, you know, again, uh, Ish, uh, Abraham talking to God and saying, oh, let, let Ishmael live before you, uh, you know, the, when he was 
you know, given up on his faith and all this stuff. He said, no, but you're going to receive a son of promise. You're going to receive the son mm -hmm. I told you through Sarah, not through a surrogate. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, uh, to say... That's in Genesis what, 17, by the way. To say that somehow uh, this is a chronological or numerical mistake uh, completely misunderstands the culture. Mm. So where does the controversy come from? It's not from the Quran. Where does the controversy come from? It's mentioned in Islamic history and some of the early sources, but it's not originated in Islam. <clears throat> where is it propagated today? Later, Islamic teachers that claimed this in order to drive more attention towards the Arabian line rather than the Jewish line of prophets, which by the way, the Arabian line, even in Islam, doesn't exist because, once again, there is no mention of a line of prophets from Ishmael. Ishmael isn't even mentioned as a lineage of prophets. He himself is mentioned as a prophet in the Islam, not in Christianity. But there's no lineage of prophets there. Mm -hmm. They're trying to reconcile the fact the Quran claims that Muhammad was spoken of beforehand, the unlettered prophet it refers to him. And by the way, Muhammad's not, name's not in the Quran either. Mm. But the <laughs> point being made is that it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what verse 2 of Genesis 22 mm -hmm. is talking about. The right of the firstborn, which was laid out in chapter 17, five chapters earlier, <laughs> would have explained that. But don't be argued with the facts. Uh, a contentious culture is going to contend. So this isn't from the Quran. It's not from any quotation from Muhammad in any of the Hadiths or any of the history of Muhammad's life. This is something that came out later when someone was reading through Genesis 22, the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, and thought, huh, well, the firstborn has got to be Ishmael. And that's where the controversy came up, where Muslims are always accusing Christians of having changed the Bible by saying, no, it wasn't Isaac that was offered up. It was Ishmael. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just not there, and it's not even there in their documents. Nope. Okay, then. Well, thank you, Sean, for the history. And, uh, boy, if you ever have a conversation with a Muslim, I imagine they probably, most of the time, do not, do not know that that's the case. That it's never is. come up. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting how uh, the holiday that uh, the Muslims celebrate, uh, and celebrated yesterday and to, to, to today, uh, commemorates the idea of Abraham offering someone as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. They're, they're, they're kind of vague about it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What can you do? Most of the pagan rituals around the Kaaba were either borrowed from those in Mecca or uh, were uh, commemorations of mythology that were attributed to what Hagar was doing when she was freaking out. Uh, I, I can't imagine her uh, going that far down south further, by the way, than Abraham would have traveled from her, the Chaldees, before she ran out of water and decided to settle in Egypt another 400 miles back up north. But mm. uh, that's the story. They say that Abraham and Ishmael built the Kaaba in Saudi Arabia, then decided to turn around and live in Canaan instead of, you know, just living in Canaan. But they have to make the narrative fit. Wow. Yeah. Well, we have time for another question. Um, Hilta, what a simple but profound and incredibly important question. Why are we here? What was God's plan for creating human beings? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Here it is. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over cattle, over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then it goes on to note a moral law for them, that they aren't to touch that tree. Everything else is for food for you. So when it comes to our origin, it was with the intent of reflecting God's characteristics, the imago dei, as they call it in fancy. But the idea is that obviously we don't reflect all of God's characteristics. We aren't eternal. We had a beginning. We don't create from nothing, but we are creative. We um, right. exist for relationships right. more than anything else in the animal kingdom. On and on it goes. But these are the sort of characteristics, these aspects that we see perfectly reflected in Jesus, what we were always meant to be in our fellowship with the Father, but at the same time what we've fallen from. That image is still there, but it's fractured. So in the restoration, it's to get back to why we're here. The reason why we see a world of purposelessness and boredom I can talk, is when we see the fact that we have this calling for something that none of us can fulfill, and that is the reception and reflection of unconditional love, the perfect image of God that we saw shown in the express image of his Son. Right. So if we're asking the most blanket statement, it's been summarized in creeds, to glorify God and make him known, enjoy him forever, there's others that are more concise into the verse, which note it was to... Uh, receive a, and abide in a saving relationship with Jesus, but the most direct biblical reference is to reflect mm -hmm. the image of God, which we saw perfectly reflected in Jesus, and what his finished work will one day restore us to. Mm. Yeah. He made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, determine their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings, so they might seek the Lord in the hope they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. That's, That's why awesome. we were created. Thank you so much, and thank you for joining us today. We hope you were uh, ministered to during the program, and we will be here again tomorrow, same place, same time. So please join us and leave a question. We'd love to engage with you. Have a wonderful evening, and God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.